All right, good morning, guys. We're going to be reading from 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9 this morning. Those verses will be on the screen, or you're welcome to open up your Bible and read along with me. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 9. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory." Obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. This is God's word. Now, part of the reason I chose this passage is because I think that this idea of living hope is a great contrast with our tendency to make New Year's resolutions. I don't know about any of you, but I am a terrible New Year's resolution person. Not terrible at making them, but terrible at keeping them. And there have been many years where I've got this list of resolutions that I make, and I tell myself I'm going to be incredibly disciplined, and then that lasts about three days. And then those kind of get left in the rearview mirror, and I've left in the same spot that I was before, except now I've added some discouragement to my plate on top of still not doing the things that I resolved to do. And what this passage is really saying to us is that what we need is not more discipline or more resolutions. What we really need, the motivation that will push us forward in our walk with Jesus is hope. And as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about this line of questioning that one of my friends would ask some football players that he was working with. So one of my friends was a strength and conditioning coach for the New York Jets. And he would have these professional athletes in front of him doing bench press or whatever, and he'd be spotting them. And he would do this line of questioning with them. He would begin to ask them about their life, what they plan on doing with their money, what they plan on doing after football, what they plan on doing next year, whatever it was. And then he would just keep asking the question, then what? he called it the then what game. Now, it wasn't super cheesy, so he didn't say, hey, guys, you want to play the then what game? But he would essentially just keep asking them then what. And then all of a sudden, these guys would be like, what are you getting at, Dermody? Why are you asking me these questions? And what he was digging at was to show them that no matter how much discipline they had or how much professional success they had as football players, or how much money they had, that that did not get to the core of their being. 
No matter how much success they had, it didn't give them the security that they were really longing for. There were still unanswered then what questions. What this passage is going to expose in us is that we are in search of a living hope. We need a hope that outlasts this life because all of us are lying to ourselves. We know that this life is like a vapor, like a mist. It's here one moment and then it vanishes away. But we are acting like this life is permanent, that all of our hopes and dreams can be fulfilled here. And we're going to see that our living hope is not in this life, but we're all searching for it. So basically, we're going to look at this living hope from three angles. We're going to see the need of living hope, the source of living hope, and the power of living hope. First of all, the need of living hope. Now, I'm going to go back in this passage a little bit. I'm going to kind of zoom out and give us the context. So I'm going back to 1 Peter 1 verse 1, which we haven't read yet. But I think that this verse is going to show us who Peter's writing to. And in that way, it's going to show us the need that all of us have for this living hope. So it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. Okay, so here's the crowd that Peter's writing to. He's writing to people that are already Christians. There's this two-word phrase, elect exiles. Those who are chosen by God... They're brothers and sisters in Christ, and they're living in this region that is approximately modern-day Turkey. They're living in a highly sophisticated society. They're living in a highly religious society, and they are living in a very pagan and sexually immoral society. Here's what's true of what they're experiencing— They kind of have these two opposing tugs at their heart going on as they live in their life. One is they can worship Jesus and place their hope in him and live for him. But what's right in front of their eyes everywhere are literal and figurative idols. And for the most part, the people who are living around them are giving themselves to these idols. They're bowing down to them. They're giving themselves to their career. They're giving themselves to sexual immorality. They're giving themselves to philosophy and seeking after worldly wisdom and knowledge. And so it's possible, what Peter's saying in the context of this whole book, is it's possible to be a Christian and in your real life experience to not have your hope be found in Jesus. He's writing them about their hope because all of us, no matter who we are, we need to be reminded of where our hope really lies because we all have this tendency to drift toward having our hope in the things of this life. So even though we don't have real statues that have names, 
that we literally bow down to, our world is very much like this early Greco-Roman world. It's sophisticated, there's a worldly philosophy, and there are competing idols for our affection, time, and money. So it's possible, really, to turn almost anything into an idol. You could turn family into an idol. You could turn money into an idol. You could turn power into an idol. You could turn sex, career, your religious tradition, or even your free time into an idol. Let me show you this with sort of a common idol in conservative circles, okay? We talk a lot about sort of liberal idols, like sexual immorality, but let's talk about us, okay? Let's not talk about people out there. Let's talk about family, okay? So here's a way that you can easily turn your family into an idol. Here's a way that I'm tempted to turn my kids into an idol. Okay, it's all right as a parent to want to have well-behaved kids, but that can quickly become this desire to have perfect kids. And so you become the type of parent, if your kids become your idol, where you're actually expecting them to act like 50-year-olds when they're three-year-olds. And you're sort of hovering over them, and you're always sort of saying, stop doing that. I want you to do this. And you start to become sort of freaked out by the way that other people view your kids. And you sort of begin to put a lot of pressure on your kids to be perfect. Or, sort of the opposite in the spectrum of that, you really want your kids to like you because you've placed them in this central place in your life. And so, instead of having really high expectations for your kids, you lower your expectations for your kids and you try to get your kids to approve of you as a parent. You become the friend parent. Or you can, people do this all the time, you turn your kids into a person that you vicariously live through. We see this especially with sports, right? Like the overzealous parent. It's like, you're looking at this guy yelling at his kid and you're looking at him and he's like five foot three and his kid's playing basketball and he's like, I want you to play in the NBA. And you're like, dude, it's kindergarten basketball and your kid's going to be five foot four. Like, this isn't going anywhere. But, but this is like a really big deal to this guy. And what begins to happen when we make our kids into an idol is it crushes them because they can never be at the center of our lives. And it leaves us empty and angry because they can never come through in the way that we're expecting them to come through for us. I was reminded of this sort of in vivid terms. One time, uh, when I was in ministry probably five years ago, there was a student that I was meeting with regularly, and he was a couple months away from being married. And he was having a lot of problems with his mom. His mom was just meddling in everything, and she was he, being really unkind to his almost wife and, 
And so this student actually asked me if I would drive and meet his mom and dad halfway so we could sit across the table from each other and talk this through. And I'll never forget, we went into this little cafe and we began to meet together. And what came out from his mom is that she was still really upset that he had quit playing baseball. She was holding on to that incredibly tightly. And and so we started probing her with questions, and she had sort of written this narrative that this kid had quit playing baseball to spite her. And she is in tears. And I'm like sitting there going, are you kidding me? Is this really what's going on? And so later we're driving back and me and the student are talking about this. And I said, so like, were you on track to be like a professional baseball player? Or, I mean, what is going on with this? And he says to me, you know, the funny thing is I wasn't even that good. He had played a little bit of college baseball, gotten hurt, quit. And his mom, if you heard her talking about him, you would have thought he was going to be like the next Babe Ruth or something like that. Unbelievable. Because even though she had a great son, he was an incredible kid, one of the best kids I've ever worked with. She didn't just want him to be a great son. She had actually turned him into an idol. And it's possible for any of us to ask other people or to ask money or our career or a relationship to be at the very central place in our life, to actually begin to place our hopes and dreams in things of this world. And what we begin to see is that all of those things will end up leaving us empty. Because eventually, even the people that we love the most will die. We can't take our money with us. Our job can be lost. Everything in this world is sort of up in the air. And when we really think about that, it's devastating. So now we're at a place to hear where this living hope can actually be found. So we're going to look at the source of living hope. So this is what Peter writes, these people that are a lot like us, who need to be reminded of their hope, living in a society filled with idols. He says, according to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So here's what's true about God. God is great in mercy. He looks at us as we're sort of scrambling around, trying to make sense of our lives, and we're chasing after these different idols, and we're over and over again going back to things that will not satisfy us. We're running away from God, 
We're running to these things week after week, day after day. We're resolving not to, but then we go back to the same place we were before. Here's what's true of God. He's great in mercy. He has mercy on us. He is not standing in judgment of you this morning. He is looking at you with compassion. He is a good father who wants you to be happy. And he knows with perfect perspective that you will not find joy, ultimate joy in the things of this world, but that your ultimate joy can only be found in him. And so that has caused God to act. God doesn't just sit in heaven and feel bad for us. He actually has done something to cause a significant change in people's lives. The scripture says that he has caused us, now he's writing to Christians, to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. So God has responded to the hopelessness of the world, to our idolatry, by sending his son, Jesus, into the world. In a word, our living hope is Jesus. Not a philosophy, it's a person. He sent him into the world, and Jesus lived the life that we could never live. He lived a life free from idolatry, where his only hope was placed in God and God's will for his life. But his life of obedience did not end with blessing from God. His life of obedience ended with a cross. And Jesus on the cross demonstrates his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And then... Jesus was in the grave for three days and he rose from death. His resurrection is our hope. Because what it shows is that even though all of our other hopes and dreams will end in devastation, our hope in Jesus will end in resurrection, in new life. Jesus is the hope we are looking for because he defeated death. He cannot die. He died and he has risen from death. Okay, so that's the good news. But the question becomes, how does that good news get activated in my life? How do I change? How am I to be born again? Now, that's an interesting phrase, to be born again. In fact, the first time that Jesus mentions the necessity of being born again, there's this guy he's talking to named Nicodemus. You can look it up in John 3. And Nicodemus gets really confused. And he's like, wait. You're telling me I have to be born again. 
So do I need to go back in my mom's stomach and be born again? And Jesus is sort of talking on this spiritual plane, and Nicodemus is talking on this very physical plane. What Jesus is saying is, there needs to be this fundamental change that happens in your life that is not caused by you. So you think about your natural birth. You were not consulted by your parents on whether you would be born or not. That decision was made without you. It is completely out of your control, and it was caused by your parents and God. In a similar way, your salvation has its cause 100% in God. God causes people to be born again into this living hope. He is the source of your living hope. And the way that he causes you to be born again is he shows you who Jesus is. He shows you that new life is found in Jesus. He opens your heart to that reality. It's like you were once blind and you can now see the truth, both that your hopes and dreams cannot be fulfilled in this life and that your hope, your deepest hope, can only be found in Jesus. And there's this profound change in your heart and response that you give that is 100% initiated by God. It's even described in the Bible as like the creation of the universe. The God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shown in our hearts to give us the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in Christ Jesus. I was thinking about how to illustrate this, and it's a little bit tough to illustrate, to find like a parallel example. But one example I thought of is when people fall in love with each other, okay? So I remember my buddy, Adam, from college, and uh, he didn't have many prospects at the time when we were sophomores in college. And one day he was coming back from the weekly gathering of our college ministry, and there was a girl who was two years older than us, who asked Adam if he would like a ride home. And he didn't think anything of it because he didn't have a car. And so she gave him a ride home. And as they were sitting in the parking lot outside of our dorm, she said to Adam, if you asked me out, I would say yes. (laughs) You can't get any more clear than that, right? And I'll never forget, Adam came up. We were really good friends. He came up, he sat on my couch. He says to me, Val just said that if I asked her out, she would say yes. I'm like, nah, no way. Are you kidding? Like this girl was way out of his league. It wasn't even, it wasn't even close. And, and so, so of course, he couldn't respond in the moment. He didn't just say, will you go out with me? He had to wait because he, he was just in such shock. 
So he goes back like a week later, asks her out. Sure enough, she says, yes. And then what began to happen in Adam's life is a total transformation. The kid like dressed like a total scrub. He, he barely got haircuts. I mean, he was just, he was a mess like all of us were. And all of a sudden, like faux hawks were cool then. So he got a faux hawk. And he, this was just when skinny jeans were getting cool. So he starts like wearing the skinny jeans and he starts like dressing really cool. And all of us start to notice that. And all of a sudden on Friday nights, he's not available anymore to hang out with us because he's hanging out with Val. There's this total life transformation. That's similar, guys, to being born again. Here's how. God initiates with us 100%. We would never dream of initiating relationship with God. And then we see that he has loved us through Jesus, and so we respond to him. And there begins to be outward evidence of this inward change that has happened in our life. Because we have hope. We have a hope that cannot be squashed by anything in this life. It can't be touched by the loss of any person or anything. It is an otherworldly hope. And our lives are changed. We often think about that backwards, don't we? We often emphasize in Christianity our response, what we do. We need to believe in Jesus. We need to do things to please God, which is true. But our salvation is not something that we can boast in because it has been initiated by God and it is his work, which is good news. Because if it is by grace, if our salvation is God's work, if it's not on the basis of our works, then it can never be taken away from us. It is absolutely secure because it's based on God's character, not on ours. Okay, so here's a question. How can we know that this fundamental change has happened in our lives? How can we know that we have been born again? What we're going to see is that this living hope is active in our lives. It's a power that begins to help us rejoice. We look at the power of living hope. So 1 Peter 1 Second half of verse 3 is we're going to pick it up. So he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. Okay, first observation, this is very realistic. 
you're going to be grieved by a lot of trials. Sometimes Christianity is explained like it's pie in the sky, like you become a Christian, you don't have any problems anymore, you're just always completely filled with joy, you have a pain-free existence. That is not true. Christianity involves experiencing deep pain and grief. It's actually a different kind of grief than the world experiences because we know where our hope is, our hope is in heaven, and we are stuck on earth. And we are grieved by that because we long to be in heaven with Jesus. And we have this deep sense, this is not the way that the world is supposed to be. This is messed up. And so we feel pain. We are grieved as we walk through this life. You're grieved by sickness. You're grieved by death. You're grieved by the uncertainties that come in your life, and you should be. But as Christians, there is this invisible, controlling reality at the center of our being. And that is that our living hope Jesus Christ has come to live in us by the power and presence of the Holy Spirit. And so although we are grieved by our trials, the mark of Christian discipleship is that although we are grieved, we are still able to rejoice. It's the combination that is so beautiful to a watching world. It's they see we're not robots and we're not faking it. We really are feeling pain. We really are honest about it. And yet, we can still rejoice. We still feel the loss of the relationship. We still feel the loss of the money. We still feel the loss of the career. And yet, it is not devastating. It might be disappointing, but it is not devastating. And that's because the essence of saving faith is to be able to see what is unseen. Faith is like a sixth sense. Through the scripture, by the spirit, you are able to view an unseen reality, which is more real to you than the present reality that you live in and you are filled with hope. I was reminded of this a couple days ago. My family, so my wife and I are five kids. For the first time, we went to a movie together. Our youngest is three. This was an adventure. And we got candy and drinks and popcorn and all that. And, and we're sitting there and we went to see Mary Poppins. All right which was great. And honestly, the movie starts off a little bit slow and it kind of sets the stage of the story and the lead character sort of is dealing with some financial problems and things like that. And so our kids are just a little bit like bored and my daughter Hazel's sitting next to me and she's like, when is Mary Poppins going to start? I'm like, this is Mary Poppins. (laughs) And then 
she ate like an entire bag of gummy bears and a whole bunch of popcorn. And so she's kind of laying out so those like really comfortable recliner seats. She's like, my belly hurts. Ugh. She's like, when are we going to go? Kind of complaining. Until Mary Poppins flies into the movie on a kite. And all of a sudden, I'm not kidding you, her entire demeanor changed. She forgot about her stomach ache. She even forgot about the food. And she is just fixated on the screen. And she's looking at the screen. She's looking at me. You can just tell she is absolutely amazed. There's these fun scenes where they're singing and they're dancing and she's taking these kids in this nursery on an adventure with her. And you go on this adventure with Mary Poppins for the next couple hours and then at the end of the movie she flies back away in the sky. And I said to my wife after the movie, every great story is the gospel. Here's what I'm saying. Jesus Christ is the real Mary Poppins. <laughs> he is. He's the one who actually came down from the sky, came from heaven to the earth, who makes everything okay in this life, who is greater than our stomach ache, who is greater than our pain, who is greater than our dead-end job, who is greater than the family problems that we have, who is greater than anything or anyone we could ever dream of or hope for in this life. Jesus is the one who makes it all okay. And relationship with him will make you forget about your problems. They'll fly away. They'll begin to look small as he looks big in your life because he is our living hope. And then Jesus floated back up into the clouds. He disappeared. He is invisible and yet present with us. And Jesus is coming back to make everything new. Let me give you a snapshot into the reality of heaven. Revelation chapter 21, verses six through seven. He said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. To the thirsty, I will give water without cost from the spring of the water of life. Those who are victorious will inherit all this, and I will be their God, and they will be my children. See, Jesus is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and last letters of the Hebrew alphabet. He is the one who lives forever. 
because he lives forever. He is our hope. And here's what he's offering to us this morning. Living water. He's offering us water that will satisfy the deepest thirst of our soul. Here's what we've all done. We've all chosen stagnant water. Water that's contaminated. And so we come every week to church, and if we're honest with ourselves, we're thirsty. We're looking for a water that will quench our thirst, something that this world can never satisfy. And Jesus is saying, it's me you're looking for. It's me who is your hope. Will you come to me and find life? Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you are our living hope. Thank you that you have come from outside this world where we're often defeated and and devastated and sad and we want someone to come and rescue us and thank you that you have come to rescue us. Would you help us this week not to be tricked by the idols that we're drawn to? You know each of us, you know what we tend to run after and where we tend to try to find satisfaction and significance outside of you. And instead of those things, would you help us to run to you to find the deepest satisfaction and meaning of our lives in you alone, Jesus. Pray this all in your name. Amen.